Please bow your heads. Almighty God, prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament reading today is is Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, which will be on page 793 in your pew Bible. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thank you, Nancy. Isn't that a beautiful picture of creation? At the end of time, you've got the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The wolf becomes a vegetarian. And rather than eating the sheep, he eats with the sheep. Isn't that a great, great picture? Reminds me of the movie Zootopia. Anybody here see Zootopia? McElroy's, did y'all see Zootopia? It's the story about the, uh, a wolf and a bunny and how they partner together to fight crime and ultimately solve the ultimate crime. The irony of the movie is that it's actually the sheep who's the criminal in that movie. Now, you may not have seen Zootopia. Maybe you saw this one, though. The Fox and the Hound. Remember that? Fox and the Hound? This is from the 80s. Surely we saw something that. You know, these enemies, these uh, inherent enemies, the Hound and the Fox, actually become friends, and they, and they work together, and they play together. And of course, we had a very contentious week this week, and unfortunately, after the election, there have been some, some protests, and you know, I just wish that every, both Republican and Democrat, we would just watch Fox and the Hound and Zootopia and say, you know, we're very different, but we can work together, Right? That's what Isaiah says it's going to be like. The wolf, rather than eating the sheep, will eat with the sheep. The predator will play with the prey. Now, if you read all of Isaiah, you know that most of Isaiah is actually filled with warnings. Uh, Judgment is coming. Isaiah is speaking God's word to the people of Israel and how they need to repent from their sin and and how judgment is coming for not only Israel, but Babylon and Egypt and many other, other nations. Towards the very end of Isaiah, Isaiah 65, God begins to paint a picture of what it's going to be like at the end. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and peace, shalom, will ultimately reign. You know, I don't know about you, but I could use a little more peace in my life today. 
I had one of those really busy weeks. We had a, a, a presbytery meeting in Dallas, and so we had to leave on Thursday, and we drove most of Thursday, meeting all day Friday, much of Saturday morning, and we drove back just late last night. In fact, Kim was driving, thanks be to God, because I was really tired, so uh, grateful for that. But when you have a, a really short week like that, you know, I had to do what I normally do in five days. I had to find a way to do it in, in three days. You ever been there before? You've got so much to do, and there's just never enough time to do it all. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by life's demands? Be here, do this, pick up this, go to this meeting, take the kids here, then pick them up at this time. I feel like I've got like five balls juggling, and I hope I don't drop one, particularly if one of them is my kid. You know, I, I can feel overwhelmed. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the stress and the busyness of life? Maybe your stress, though, is not just caused by being busy. Maybe your stress in life is rather caused by uncertainty. We are about to have a, a president in office who's never held political office before. Uh, some people are rejoicing in that. Some people are, are, are quite anxious. They're uncertain how it's going to go. How is he going to lead? We, we have no political record to give us an indication of what he's really going to do. Life can be filled with uncertainty, can it? Not just politically, but financially as well. Is the stock market going to go up or is it going to crash with all the changes he plans to make in the, in the, with his trade agreements and all the other things we hear about? Is the Federal Reserve finally going to raise those interest rates they've been threatening to do for so long? Is that going to happen? We know that's never good for the economy or it never seems to be. What direction is the economy heading in? What direction are oil prices going to? Are they going to go up or down? Life is filled with uncertainty, isn't there? And this uncertainty can make us quite anxious. It can disrob us of our peace. Yes, life is filled with uncertainty, but there's one thing for sure that we know as followers of Christ. We know how it all ends. We know the good news of how it all ends. To find out how it all ends, please turn in your Bibles to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. If you've been with us the last several months, you know that we've been taking a journey through the story, which is the grand narrative of Scripture, and we're at the end of the story this Sunday. We're at the end of the story of God's people, and so we come to Revelation. Now, Revelation, just as a little bit of background here, history tells us that Revelation was written by John, the apostle who was the beloved disciple of Jesus. He was the youngest of the twelve. John wrote Revelation while he was on the island of Patmos. He was living in exile there. He was a prisoner. And so God gave him this incredible revelation. And, and he writes this beautiful book, Revelation, to the churches in Asia Minor, churches like uh, the seven churches like Asia uh, in uh, Ephesus, like Ephesus and Laodicea and several other churches to encourage them. Because the churches in Asia Minor are beginning to be persecuted. They're experiencing the persecution of the the Jews and of the Greeks and of the Roman government. And and so to encourage them with a word of hope, he gives them a picture of what it's all going to be like at the end, a vision that God gave to him so they might find peace even in the midst of the busyness and the uncertainty of this life. To find out how it all ends, turn in your pew Bible to page 1326, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you inspired John to put pen to paper so that we might have a glimpse of this great revelation that you gave to him, a vision of what the future is going to be like, a vision of hope, a vision of peace. 
Oh God, I pray that as we read your word this morning, that you might help us to see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear and open our hearts that we might be transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I want to pause there just for a moment just so that we can grasp what John is saying here. The Greek word for new there, it's kainos. And kainos doesn't just simply mean new as in most recently made. It really means new in, new in quality and in ultimate makeup. It's, it's a new thing. It's not like the old. It's different. It's an innovation. As you remember from the first chapter of Genesis that we read as a a part of the story, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said it was good. And when he created humanity, men and women, he said that we were very good for we were created in, in his very image. But then beginning with our first parents that we find in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and and they broke the one commandment that God had given to them. And, And with that original sin came sin into the world and all of creation was ultimately corrupted by that first sin. And sin has had a constant presence in our lives ever since. For we, we've inherited a sinful nature that left our own is, is prone to wander from God. It's prone to reject God. It's prone to do our own thing rather than what God would have us do. However, Jesus, God's one and only Son, who was without sin, came to this earth, born as a, a baby in a lowly manger. He grew up among us, he taught us, he healed us, and ultimately he died for us as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Then on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf, so that we might have the assurance of eternal life, so that we might have a, a new life that will simply follow him and believe. Unfortunately, as we read through the New Testament, we can see that Satan still has a very active role in our, our world today. And, We can see that sin and evil still exist in our our day and age. We see that in the the senseless violence of this world where radical radical Muslims are are killing Christians overseas simply because they are Christian. The churches that John wrote to in Revelation were experiencing persecution. Many of them were uncertain on how life was going to end and if it was going to all be worth it. And so John writes this to, to encourage them, to let them know it will be worth it. Yes, they were being persecuted in the world, not in the United States, but the church around the world is being persecuted. In fact, Open Doors, which uh, keeps track of uh, persecution, says that 2015, last year, was the most violent year for Christians in modern history. Christians continue to be killed in places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sudan, Somalia, And they're being imprisoned and dying in prison in places like North Korea. It's not easy to be a Christian in the world today. Maybe in Amarillo, but not in the world today. But if you read Revelation, the good news is that in Revelation 19 and 20, we read the story of how Jesus ultimately conquers Satan. He he destroys Satan. He kills Satan. It's a great story. He throws him into the, the lake of fire. You should read it after the service today. And then we read in Revelation 21, we pick it up, and, and, and John has a vision, and it's a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And notice that it's different. There is no sea. There's no mass bodies of water. 
You see, the sea in the first century and in ancient times was a, was a place of chaos. It was a place of uncertainty. In fact, in Revelation 13, we, we understand that the dragon comes from the sea. But there is no sea in the new heaven and new earth. There is no place for Satan to come from. For Satan has been destroyed. Sin has been wiped away. There is no sin in the new heaven and the new earth. There's only love and, and a peace and obedience to God. For all is calm. All is peace as God's presence fills the new heaven and the new earth. Yes, the new heaven and the new earth are qualitatively different from our earth and our heaven today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, I would honestly like to stop right there at verse 7. Uh, as a Presbyterian, I don't like to talk about hell a whole lot. Uh, my mom's Southern Baptist. I remember going to her churches some. I hear that a lot. I don't like doing that. In fact, I checked in the Greek, and I was like, you know, is verse 8 in the same paragraph in the Greek? And it is. I've got to read verse 8. I don't like verse 8. It doesn't make me feel good. It's not going to make you feel good. But as a Presbyterian minister, I, told, I know that I am called by God to preach the whole counsel of God. I can't ignore the verses I don't like. So I'm going to read verse 8, and we're going to wrestle with verse 8, because it doesn't make us feel good. But I believe God wants to say something to us. Let's look at verse 8 now. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Wow. Wow. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John, it was going so well until you wrote verse (laughs) 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Before verse 8, 1 to 7, those are great verses. I loved reading about the new heaven and the new earth and, and how all things are going to be made new. I don't know you, but I'd like to have a new body. My lower back's been hurt me lately. I won't have any pain. There'll be no more tears, no more suffering, only praise. I mean, that's a great picture. John, why didn't you just stop there with verse 7? It was good news. Why did John write verse 8? To tell us who wouldn't be there. I don't like to preach about hell, fire, and brimstone, and yet here it is. Not everyone's going to be at the new heaven and the new earth. Not everyone's going to be 
in heaven. Only those who are faithful. Yes, he's not going to allow the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable and the murderers and the sexually immoral and the sorcerers and idolaters and all the liars to be in heaven. Their portion is going to be in the lake that burns with fire. Why? I mean, aren't we all sinners in in need of God's grace? I mean, who are we to stand in judgment of these other sins? We've all fallen short of, of God's glory as the scriptures explain. Don't we all deserve God's wrath? Why shouldn't we, why should, any, why should some be saved and not all of us by what Jesus has done? Why does John write verse eight and make a point to tell us that not everybody's gonna get to be in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, John writes Revelation and he sends it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, seven churches who are being persecuted, who are struggling who are being persecuted because they confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And in the midst of this persecution, they're probably wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it to remain faithful? I mean, it it seems like life would be a lot easier if I just went along with the pagan ways of my culture. Why do I insist on proclaiming that Jesus Christ alone is Lord when often it simply means my imprisonment or my ultimate death? Is it worth it? Well, John wants to let the church know that yes, in fact, it is worth it. And he lets us know that, well, that if you don't profess that Jesus is Lord, if you are cowardly and fearful and faithless and you're a liar, well, then you won't get to receive the great reward that God has come to bring. And this is very similar to what Jesus says, actually. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus says this to those who deny him. Matthew 10, 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. People who in fear deny Jesus will be denied by Jesus on that last day. John writes verse 8 to encourage the church members to remain faithful, continue in your faithfulness. It will be, it will be worth it in the end. Don't turn away from God because if you do, he's going to turn away from you. And John has seen people leave the church. He writes about it actually in his first epistle, first epistle to John, of John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. He writes about the people who have left the church. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Persecution is happening. People are leaving the church. And John is telling that church, that first century church, that, you know, people are going to leave, but they were never of us. In fact, persecution helps separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who really believe, those those who have a deep-seated faith, and those who simply have a nominal faith, who, who are faithful to Christ when it's convenient. But when the persecution comes, they no longer remain. And so they never really were with Christ. And so he warns and encourages the churches who are are faithful to remain faithful. Because in the end, it's all going to be worth it. And if you're not faithful, if you you deny Christ, well, he's going to deny you. And you'll be in the lake of fire. Now, God sent his son here to this earth, not to condemn it, but to save it. As John wrote about in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, 
John records much of that conversation. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, verses we know so well, to 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in the order that the world might be saved through him, God's plan was to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But, this is a big but, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus, those who reject Jesus, who are, who are faithless liars, as John explained, are condemned because they do not believe. And if we think we can earn our way to heaven, we're sorely mistaken. No, we all need Jesus. We need the sacrifice of Jesus. And and we can accept the the work of Christ simply through faith. But we've got to have faith, a a faith that's going to last, that's going to persevere through the hard times. People who refuse to believe in Jesus and persist in sins like murder and sexual immorality, sorcery, idolatry, and lying will not be in heaven because it's a new heaven and a new earth. And sin cannot exist in this new heaven and this new earth. There's no room for sin in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's why those who persist in sin, who deny that Jesus is Lord, won't be there with us. That's tough stuff. That's hard for us to hear in our postmodern world where truth is relative, where we'd like to think that everybody gets to go to heaven, that as long as they're sincere in what they believe, that's what our culture says, that as long as they're sincere in what they believe and they're good people, then they'll get to go. But the fact is... None of us are good enough to get to go. We all need what Jesus did for us. There's only one way to receive that great gift, the gift of Christ's sacrifice, the gift of his resurrection, his victory over sin and death. There's only one way to receive that great gift, and that's through faith in him. As Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your lips Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What about that coworker or that classmate or that family member who does not believe in Jesus, who persists in sin and unbelief? What are we to do? What are we to do for them? How are we to respond to their unfaith and their unbelief today? I believe the Apostle Paul gives us some direction. In his letter to Timothy, who was leading one of those seven churches, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. He offers us some instruction for today. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul writes this to Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus, when there's a Roman emperor who's very pagan, who has no idea who Jesus is and could care less who Jesus is. And Paul tells us we should pray for him and pray for all people. Pray for all people. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men and the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his own life in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, was the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and then conquered sin and death on that third day. And it's only through Christ that we'll be saved. And so, for those who don't know Christ, we need to pray. For as Presbyterians, we know that ultimately conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to know Christ except through faith in Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit who does that work. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says that. And if we think about the life of Saul, who was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians, we need to pray that God might get a hold of everyone we know who doesn't know Christ, just as he got a hold of Saul's heart and blinded him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus spoke to him, and his life was forever changed, and he went from Saul to Paul, and he began to plant churches, and and grow churches, and, and spread the good news of God's love. Yes, if we want to make a difference, if we want to see everyone we know in heaven with us, we need to pray. We need to intercede for them. We need to pray that God might open their eyes to who he really is. But we also need to pray that God might begin to transform our lives For we are called to be a new creation. 2 Corinthians, as it showed up on the screen just a moment ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed, behold, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Yes, we read about in Revelation that God's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth, but the good news of the gospel is because of our faith in Christ, God begins to do a work in us to transform us. In fact, we read into Revelation 21 that God is going to come down from heaven and be with us and, be, and make all things new, which will be great. But the fact is, as we read the New Testament, we can see that through faith in Christ, God begins to make us a new creation today. That, that Christ has come, God has already become one of us in Jesus Christ, and now he's ascended to the right hand of our Father, and now through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And he's now, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we begin to live as transformed people following the promptings of the Holy Spirit, seeking to point others to the good news of God's love and the way that we live, the way that we love others. Yes, as Paul instructs Timothy, we need to pray for all people that they might come to know Jesus. But we need to pray for ourselves that we might be transformed and live as a new creation so that others will see the way that we live and the way that we love and they'll wonder why and then we can tell them it's because God first loved us and gave his son for us. And it's in gratitude for all that God has done for us that we live and we love the way that we do. Yes, in Revelation chapter 21, we are told that God will dwell with us in new heaven and new earth. But the good news of the gospel is that through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us today. And he can use us to point others to him if we will pray and seek to be an instrument of his grace to others. The next time we find ourselves becoming anxious about the uncertainty of life, or the busyness of this life, overwhelmed by all of the stress of this life, let's remember Revelation 21. That in the end, it's okay. Because God wins. That in the end, new heaven and new earth are going to come down and make all things new. And and as I think about Revelation 21, as I look at life through the lens of Revelation 21 and, and all of eternity, most of the problems that I have actually seem pretty small in light of all of eternity. And so in that knowledge, as John writes to the churches in Revelation who are stressed and uncertain, we can live in peace knowing that God wins. And by living as 
In that shalom of God, we can be an instrument of God's shalom, God's peace. As people notice that we don't get anxious or worried like others. And they'll wonder why, and we can tell them because we know who's in the throne. Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Therefore, in the knowledge of Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, may we seek to live as a new creation today and reflect a life of praise and peace so that those who know us will see that there's something different about us and they will ask us why. And then we can tell them the good news that our God is in control and he's demonstrated the full extent of his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and he rose again for us and we can have the assurance of eternal life and the gift of a new life if we simply believe in him. Let's pray for those who do not yet know so they might be with us in that new heaven and new earth. Let's pray. God, there are many people in our lives today who do not yet know you, coworkers, classmates, even family members. God, we lift them up to you today. We pray that you might do a work in their lives as you did a work in Saul's life and you grabbed hold of Saul and you opened his eyes to who you really are so that he might confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. But we also pray, Lord, that you might use us to be an instrument of your grace, that you might begin to continue the transformative work that you've begun in our lives, that we might better reflect the love of Christ, so that people will look at us and see the peace and the love and the joy that we have, and they'll wonder why, and then we can point them to you and tell them that we love because you first loved us, that all we do is in gratitude for what you've done for us. Oh, Lord, by your spirit, guide us so that we might glorify you in all that we say and do, that others may see our good deeds and ultimately give praises to you, our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Yes. All right, we were downstairs, and now we're here with you all, which is great. Uh, Robin Price was on our church staff uh, about 15 years ago. She was our children's director, so 